Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you this morning that you are here with us. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of gathering together in your name and worshiping you. God, as we approach your word, I pray that you would bring light, that you would teach us, that you would help me to communicate. Trying to communicate who you are, Lord, is beyond me. So, Lord, I pray that you would take what I say and paint with the power of the Holy Spirit the pictures in our heart that we need in order to be conformed to the knowledge of you. Lord, we lift up this morning Janet. God, uh, we pray for your healing grace in her body. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would continue your healing in Earl and in Noah. God, we rejoice that they're all home and back uh, with family. God, we just, we give you glory that you are always faithful watching over us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Mark chapter 1, verses 12 all the way to verse 15, okay? So this breakneck pace is going to get us through Mark sometime by 2024. So uh, we will. There's a couple spots where we'll go. We'll go in larger chunks. But there's some stuff you just can't. At least I can't just rush over it to get the other stuff. You you have. There's too much here. So let's let's read um, these verses and uh, we'll start talking about them. Right after the baptism, remember we talked about last week, John the Baptist baptized Jesus, a voice comes out of heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. That's what we just got done with, and Mark immediately goes to verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's just a lot I'm going to, I want to say and I'm super excited to say it. Okay, just this, this is exciting stuff. So we're going to split this up into two different sections this morning. We're going to talk about the temptation of Jesus And then we're going to talk about the kingdom. So if you want a title for the message, it's Temptation and the Kingdom. So the first thing that I want you to see is that verse 12 says the Spirit immediately, remember I said that word's used like 50 sometimes in the book of Mark, immediately, immediately, everything's immediately, drove him out into the wilderness. I want to point out that the word drove or In other places, in verse 34, it's translated as cast out. As in Jesus cast out demons. This same word is being used here to say that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Not unwillingly. Jesus Jesus was never compelled to do anything. He willingly did everything that He did. That was a part of His perfect obedient fulfillment of everything on our behalf. That's what we talked about last week. He fulfilled all righteousness. And the Holy Spirit, after the baptism, sends Him into the wilderness. But the force of it is what I want you to notice, is that this is urgent. There is an urgency to get away from everything and get alone in the wilderness. 
And you notice that it says he was out there with the wild animals, the wild beasts. This is the only account of, the, of all the Gospels that mention that. I think some people have had different ideas on it, but we think it just simply means Jesus is in a dangerous place. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my, he's out in the wilderness and he's not eating anything. He's fasting for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness and he is being tempted here. And I want you to think back to Genesis uh, chapter 3. He's being tempted in the same way that Adam and Eve were tempted. Except Adam and Eve failed. Jesus didn't. Jesus is actually correcting what Adam and Eve failed to do. In Adam, all of us are dead in our sin. And in Christ is where we find redemption and forgiveness. The whole human race is in Adam dead in sin, in his failure, and Jesus, in Christ, as a Christian, you are in the family of God now and alive unto God because of Jesus. And in order for us to get to that point, we're reading what the life and the early ministry of Jesus was as he fulfilled all righteousness, including Adam and Eve messed it up, I'm going to demonstrate what it should look like and how you are supposed to not sin. This is what Adam should have done. There is a big difference, though, between Adam and Eve and Jesus. Adam and Eve were in paradise and had everything handed to them, and everything was beautiful and bountiful and wonderful. Jesus is fasting in the wilderness with wild beasts. There's a, there's a big difference between the two. Just something to point out. There's something else about the wilderness idea. It goes all throughout here. Does anybody remember anything in the Old Testament about the wilderness? Was there ever a significant time in the history of Israel where they may have been in the wilderness for anyone? Anyone? 40 years? 40 years? Why were they there? Because of disobedience and complaining? Remember God said, I'm, you got to think, God splits the Red Sea, He does all the plagues, He does everything He does in Egypt, shows Himself strong on their behalf, delivers them out of Egypt's hand. They watch the... Can you imagine watching the Red Sea split in half? Seriously. You walk across on dry land, it's not muddy. My garden, I was in it yesterday, and it rained yesterday, and it was muddy. This is the Red Sea... You walk across, and then just as soon as you get through and the Pharaoh gets in, and the water comes back. You would think that your reaction to that would be, I'm pretty sure God's going to do everything He said He's going to do. Right? You would think, but it's not. That is not their reaction. They start complaining over the magical bread coming out of heaven. They start complaining over everything that God is doing, and they're complainers. And when they get to the promised land, they see giants, and they think, they can't be helped. And so God says, you're going to wander the wilderness for 40 years. And if you want to make a parallel, Jesus is fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. And if you want to make a connection, Jesus is redeeming everything. 
He's redeeming everything, and it's probably symbolic of 40 days of fasting to represent the 40 years of Israel in the wilderness to say, I am redeeming the whole thing, everything that has been done wrong, He is setting right. What is it, too, in the parallel in the temptation? Does everybody remember how this tempt? Because Mark just says, he's tempted by Satan 40 days, he's with the wild animals, the angels were ministering to him, and then we're on. We're just going to move on to the next thing. But if you read Luke's account and you read Matthew's account, you know that Jesus was tempted three times, three different things. And how did Jesus respond each time? It is written. There's something really significant here. I can't help bring this up. We were watching this week on AGTV, which is a really cool subscription service, by the way. Um, We were watching a video uh, that they had about Christian deconstructionism. Now, how many of you are familiar with what that is? Christian deconstructionism is people who have grown up in church who begin to deconstruct their faith to be more in line with the present climate of our culture and our world. And and this is, deconstruction has gone on, it's as old as, as Christianity, where you get inside of a culture, and like Paul talks about one of his folk in uh, 2 Timothy, the guy, I can't pronounce his name off the top of my head, but one of his, uh, one of his people that were w- with him has left me having loved this present world. So he was with us, he was engaged in the work of ministry, and he's gone. Christian deconstructionism is simply, you get enamored with the culture, and this this stuff in the Bible, it's it's too bigoted. It's too exclusionary. How dare we say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? And nobody comes to God unless through Him. I mean, just saying that now, cancel culture comes in like a vulture to kill you, right? You can't say stuff like that. You're not supposed to say stuff like that, let alone God's definition of men and women, God's definition of marriage, God's definition of how we are supposed to interact with one another, forgiving one another, loving one another. So deconstructionism is very, very popular. If you just Google it, you will find all kinds of ex-Christians who have deconstructed their faith out, and they want to hang on to a Oprah-esque spirituality, but they don't want things like the virgin birth, they do not want things like the literal resurrection, and they don't, they, they don't want the Bible. They don't want a biblical God. They want a God of their own making, which is really not much different than the children of Israel who made a golden calf so they could worship something that they had made. Human beings are not that much different today than they are then. We are going to do it. Nobody in this room is tempted to go home and melt down all your gold and make a calf. None of you have that as a struggle. Pastor Steve, I need to talk to you about a struggle that I'm having. I really am tempted to melt down all of my mother's jewelry and fashion something into an idol that I can worship and place on the mantle. Nobody in this room is struggling with that. However, 
the culture that we live in, we are living in a boiling soup right now. Everybody, you can feel it, right? You can feel it. And the, and the boil is this. You better not have absolute truth. You better not have assurance in Jesus Christ. That is arrogant and that is bigoted of you. And look at all these ugly verses and then they can go to some verses and talk about how ugly Scripture is. And I'm just telling you this, church, as warning so that you can keep your heart and mind fresh in God and in Scripture to know that this is a, nothing is new under the sun. People losing their faith and deconstructing it because the culture demands it is, is not abnormal. Let me boil it down to this. The pressure of the world says get out of that Christian stuff. That is all that's happening. It comes from different angles for different reasons, but that is what is happening. And Satan has done it the same way since Genesis. In fact, I want you to go with me to Genesis chapter 3 because I think it is important just to look at it. Genesis chapter 3. I want to read the first six verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say? Did God actually say? Did, did God really Say that? Is that really what the Bible means? Does the Bible really say? Does the Bible really say homosexuality is wrong? Does the Bible really say? Does it really, really say? That is everywhere on the internet. Everywhere. Everywhere you look. Is that what it really means? Did he really say that? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now listen, before we write Eve off immediately, listen, she appeals to what she was told. Meaning she does appeal to the Scripture. She doesn't cave instantaneously. I think that is important. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So, when she was confronted with, did God really say, she responded with, yes, this is what He said. Do, do you see that she knew the Scripture? She knew what God had said. So why didn't that keep her? That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Because look at what the devil does next. It, it is not for nothing that Genesis 3 says the serpent was craftier than everybody else. Satan is not coming at us with slobbering fangs, okay, in the dark, like all the horror movies you've seen. Turn off the light switch, turn it on, there he is. You know, those weird jump scenes and all that stuff. That's not the way he's coming. He is coming through your brain. He comes. That is why I'm telling you, I don't know how. I understand the fundamentalist urge to say no secular music, no movies, no television, no nothing. I understand that urge because the urge is based on the fact that the cleverness of Satan is in the worldview of the world 
and it's infiltrating your head all the time to a degree you don't know that it's happening. And one day you wake up and say, did God really say? Where did all that come from? It doesn't come like a full frontal assault. It's coming in the periphery all the time and you aren't aware of it. If you were aware that you were being attacked by the devil, you would stand up and say, wait a second. The lack of awareness is part of the problem. I'm not being affected by all this radiation. I'm not being affected. I don't feel nothing. How many radiation people do we have in here? You guys all go behind that wall, right? Every time you do the x-ray. Why? Because if you work there for 40 years, you might grow an extra head or something. I don't know what happens if you... I don't know exactly what happens. But, but it doesn't seem like anything's happening. But it is. So, so listen to what Satan says after Eve says, this is what God said. But the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you know what he said is absolutely true. It's 100% true. But God told him, no. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, who should have been a man, and said, this is wrong. And he failed as a man. And he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Exactly what Satan said would be true. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The fall of man. What I want us to see is that Eve responded to Satan with Scripture, with the Word of God, and yet Satan parried. You know what a parry is? You, somebody throws a blow, or a, it's really in a sword fight, and you parry and block, and then you come back. That is what Satan did. She threw something from Scripture, the sword of the Spirit, and Satan parried and said, yes, but, and it was the yes, but, that killed her and killed Adam. So what does Jesus do in the same situation? I want you to go to Matthew chapter 4. Because I, I want you to see the contrast. Matthew chapter 4. Verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, it is written. Now, de Christian deconstruction, which is something I brought up a little bit ago, says that nobody believed that the Scripture was the Scripture. Jesus views the Old Testament as scriptural. He just said, it is written. 
man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. And here's the cleverness. It is the same thing that happened with Eve. He's coming back with scripture. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan knows biblical doctrine better than you do. You you do know he's smarter than you, right? I mean, like way smarter. He is a spiritual being. He is way smarter. And he knows Scripture. He knows the truth of Scripture to such a degree in absolute terror of it and its reality in your life that he's good at parrying in this fight with Scripture. This is how people can talk themselves into adultery with Scripture. I Have I seen that before? Yes. How in the world does that happen? Because it seems so clear, right? Because when you're caught up in whatever you're caught up in, whatever, whatever it may be, you can make clever little excuses all along the way down the river to the waterfall to your death. Not knowing that you are being deceived. Jesus gets the parry and another blow with Scripture from Satan. And Jesus says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then Satan takes him up to a high mountain, shows him the kingdoms of the world. He says, if you'll bow down and worship me, this is all yours. And Jesus said to him in this last temptation, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The difference between Jesus and the difference between Eve and Adam is that Jesus did not let go of Scripture. Jesus did not let go of the truth of God's Word. He held on to that all the way through and said, I am not listening to you. How do you apply that to your life, church? Pretty simple, isn't it? Read your Bible and pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow. Feast on God's Word. Know God's Word. Live by God's Word. Talk about God's Word a lot. If it is not a regular part of your life, do not think that you will not be swept along by the culture. And five years from now, There will be people in this room or watching online that will believe things that they would never have believed today. How does that happen? Because you go down the river of clever deception that Satan has, and you don't know that it's happening, and you are losing your belief in God, and you are embracing the world's ideology, and before you know it, you are finding excuses as to why this can't mean what it clearly says. Therefore, we are susceptible to, did God really say? We are highly susceptible to it. Because our sinful desires want to agree with the devil. 
Have you ever wondered why he's so good at what he does? It's because you want to go where he wants you to go. That's why Jesus said, narrow is the road that leads, or the gate. Broad is the path that goes into destruction. The, the way of the world is way easier. Just going with the flow of whatever is popular now is way easier than saying, I am going to serve God with all of my heart, with all of my strength. I'm going to honor Him. I am not going to listen to a culture that demands that I stop being a Christian. Or at least I need to become the kind of Christian that is inclusive of every other religious belief, that is inclusive of every cultural and society societal ethic, including a sexual revolution that demands that I see women as men and men as women and everything else that's going on in our culture. I'm not the only one that feels this pressure, am I? Am I, am I alone in the pressure? Does everybody feel? It's like you can feel the push. It is not 1987 when it was cool to be a Christian or at least everybody just left you alone or a Christian was the default setting. It's not like that. It's going to continue to not be like that. And so part of my preaching is, be people of the book. Be people of the Bible. If we are not people of the Bible, you will be swept away. You will. It's not even a question. You will be swept away into the culture because eventually your job may be on the line. Like, for real. Like, very much so. I got to take care of my family. Whoever doesn't work, they don't eat. I mean, I got some verses. Right? Just... Okay. I know it's incredibly cheerful, right? Cheerful, cheerful Sunday mornings with Pastor Steve. Be ready. Know the Bible, which means you have to read it means you have to view it as the source of life. You have to view it like Jesus is going to say later. He says it in John chapter 6. He says that my words are life. What you should see out of that story, out of, out of the temptation of Jesus, is that Scripture is how Jesus dealt with Satan's temptation in the way that Adam and Eve did not. Though Adam and Eve, Eve started to deal with it, but didn't finish it. Okay. Something, too, to say that the angels came down, uh, they were ministering to him. That's just, uh, it's just interesting to think about that that this temptation that Jesus underwent was probably the most strenuous temptation in the history of the world. You and I have never been tempted by the capital D devil. Okay? You guys know that there is a Lucifer, a Satan, and then he's got a kingdom, right? We know this. There are demons, servants of Satan, that you and I are dealing with. If you look at it as a military order, which is how the Bible describes it with principalities and powers and all of that kind of stuff, if you look at it as a military order, you and I have probably dealt primarily with low-level privates 
the majority of our life. Just low-level scrub demons, and you have your hands full with that. Let alone dealing with sergeants and lieutenants and further up the chain. I'm, I'm not, listen, there are people who really get into that stuff. That is not my point. But the kingdom of Satan definitely does have a hierarchy. It definitely has an order. And uh, you and I have never dealt with the general over Satan's army, Satan himself. You, you and I haven't dealt with him. He's busy messing with presidents and kings and congresses and rulers. And he who knows what he's doing. Jesus was dealing with Satan himself in a direct temptation. Angels came and ministered to him at the end of it. Because he won. Hadn't eaten in 40 days. He's God in the flesh, but his flesh was hungry and needed help. So angels came and ministered to him. So after this, you go to verse 14, which isn't exactly chronological when you look at some of the other Gospels, but Mark wants us to get the distinction that, verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. It's almost as if to say, John the Baptist was the preeminent guy. Everybody was coming out to hear him. John the Baptist gets arrested. He's put in jail. Eventually he will be beheaded. And that's when Jesus comes out and he starts proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Wait a second, what exactly is the gospel? Because I thought the gospel was Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Right? And He was raised on the third day. And if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Right? That's the gospel. Well, how is Jesus preaching the gospel if He hasn't died on the cross yet? Has that struck anybody ever when you're reading? You ever thought, what exactly, what are we talking about? So, Let's define the gospel biblically. The, the gospel is the good news of the kingdom of God. It is a reference to His reign and rule. A kingdom has a king, and wherever the borders are of the kingdom, the king rules and reigns and owns it. Now, God's, God owns everything, but His kingdom in this sense is a spiritual kingdom. And the problem that the Jewish people had was they could only think of it in a physical kingdom with the borders and the walls and the chariots and the horses and the bows and the arrows and the spears and the swords. That's, that's the way they thought of the kingdom. And so they look at all the Old Testament passages that do point towards the coming kingdom that the Messiah will bring in, and they think that's what's coming. And Jesus comes out and says, there's good news of the kingdom. You need to believe in this good news, this gospel. Let's, let's try to define what the Old Testament was pointing forward to in terms of the gospel. You know the gospel, the good news, is in the Old Testament. Sometimes part of what's going to happen is I'm going to try to unravel some of our thinking because a lot of us have grown up thinking Old Testament bad, New Testament good, right? Raise your hand if you felt that. I will raise my hand. 
Old Testament bad, New Testament good. Old Testament grumpy God, New Testament happy hippie Jesus. Right? Old Testament, ooh, that's rough. If you've read Leviticus, it is. It's difficult. If you read uh, John 3.16, way better. Like that, way better. Same God. Okay? Same covenant. It's just new through Christ. But the covenant goes all the way back to the promise of Abraham that he's going to make a people. As numerous as the stars of the, of the sky. And the way that he makes that people is through the nation of Israel until Christ. And the new covenant is really inaugurated in Christ in his death and resurrection. I'm getting way ahead. But let's go to Isaiah to get an idea of what the uh, Old Testament had to say. Isaiah, did I tell you where it was? Isaiah chapter 40. Just to give you an idea of the prophetic utterances about good news, the gospel. Get up, verse 9, Isaiah 40. Get up to a get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, Israel, herald of good news. Gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. It goes on and on and on about who God is and His majesty. Get up, Zion, and proclaim this good news. What is that good news? God is the Savior of His people. and This is the stuff He's going to do. The idea of God saving His people is Old Testament. Proclaiming it as good news or gospel evangelon, that's Greek, it's good news. It's where we get evangelist and evangelism. It is the good news that God is Savior. It's not the only place you can stay in Isaiah. Go to chapter 52. Just so you can see, there's a lot more passages like this. This is the passage that Paul quotes in Romans 10. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news. You remember that from Romans 10? How are they going to hear unless there's somebody preaching? Somebody's got to be sent to preach. And he says, as it is written, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Paul connects the gospel to the passage in Isaiah here. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation who says, Zion, your God reigns. Super important. The gospel is the good news proclaimed about the salvation of God. That is a simple definition. In the Old Testament, God is the Savior of His people. Proclaim it. 
So when you go to Mark chapter 1, and Jesus is preaching the gospel, the good news, what Jesus is saying is, salvation is here. That's what He's saying. The good news, the gospel of God is here. The gospel of God is, here's the good news of God, it's salvation, His kingdom is here. The audience would have heard Isaiah tickling in the back of their head. They would have heard all the prophecies about the Messiah. They would hear like, okay, here's a preacher. John the Baptist said, make way for the coming Messiah. Get ready, get ready. That's what John was saying. I am the one in the wilderness making the way straight for the Lord. There's one coming after me mightier than I am whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So they were already primed and ready like, that. that's the Messiah. That's who the Messiah is. He's coming to do that. And now Jesus, as soon as John's arrested, says, I am here to tell you about the Gospel of God. Salvation is here, is what He's saying. The kingdom is here, so repent, that's what He says, repent and believe in the Gospel. Believe in this good news that the kingdom is on you. It's here. What is He really saying? Which they don't get yet which we have the benefit of hindsight looking back, but in the present tense, they did not realize the herald of this gospel is God in the flesh. He is here. That is what is happening. The good news is, I'm here, and I am proclaiming to you to repent and believe the kingdom is here. It's awesome. They just didn't get it all at once. And you've got to allow for some time because God enters into history through Jesus Christ to do what He had ordained to do from before the foundation of the world, which is make salvation happen. He's going to do it through Himself. Now look at what Jesus says in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. Now that word, time, means kairos, which is not the same as chronos. I mean, you know what chronos references? Chronological. Meaning 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, right? Chronological. Time. It's going on and on and on and on. But if you have a doctor's appointment at 8.30 a.m. on Monday, in the flow of the chronos of time, you have a specific time that you're supposed to be somewhere. Right? We call it an appointment. Another way to look at this is, kairos is the appointment, by the way. Kairos is that specific moment. Another way, and maybe even a better way to get the feel of what he's trying to say, is that chronological time is all of history. All of history is, this, this moment is a part of history. But this moment will not be remembered more than likely. Right? There's nothing historic about what's happening right this second. But if I ask you what you were doing on September 11th, does anybody remember from 20 years ago? Why do you remember? Because it was historic. You're never going to forget it. 
You can ask your, your parents or some of you in this room, do you remember where you were when JFK was assassinated? Why do you remember where, he, where you were? Because it was historic. Then you have miniature history, historic moments in your life, like when your children are born, when you get married. But in the broad scope of history, the big events that happen, unfortunately, most of those are negative. The moon landing, that was historic. That, that date is historic. Jesus is saying, the historic moment is here. It's fulfilled. This is a Kairos moment. This is a God-appointed moment. It's now. So when he said it that way, he wasn't just saying that um, uh, it, it's here, probably. He's saying it is absolutely the time. It is now. This is a historic moment, people. So you need to know that, and it's fulfilled. It's now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's interesting that repent is inserted in there. It means to turn from whatever it is you're doing and go towards the kingdom. Go towards the saving God of the kingdom and get back with Him. That's what He's saying. Jesus saying the kingdom's here because I'm here. A way that I think is helpful to look at this is that the door to the kingdom of God has been opened by the arrival of the Son of God. And over the next 30 to 40 years, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the Apostle Paul is going to write Romans chapter 1, and it says, I am a preacher of the gospel of God, which is the same phrase in Mark. And that gospel is now understood in the rest of the New Testament as Jesus proclaims the coming of the kingdom. He's the beginning, that opening of the door of the kingdom. But what everybody is about to find out is that the way the kingdom is going to work in redemption is that the king is going to die for his subjects. And redemption is going to happen by faith in his resurrection. And you will be inserted into the kingdom. But we're not there yet. We're not to that spot yet. Where we're at right here is the door opening and Jesus stepping through it and saying, I'm here in this Kairos historic moment to tell you the time is fulfilled. Repent and believe in this gospel. Repent and believe. And that was his message. And people started to do so and follow him. We're going to get into what it looks like as Jesus has opened the door and then his ministry of three years as he healed the sick, as he cast out demons, and as he preached the word of God. We're going to see Him, God in the flesh, proclaiming this kingdom all the way up to the cross. So, that's as far as we're going to make it today. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand up.
want to just ask everybody to bow your head with me as we go before the Lord in prayer. And I just also would like to say, along with Jesus, that the message of the gospel has been consistent. And that message is always, turn from your wicked ways, turn from serving yourself, turn away from ignoring God and just trying to be a good person on your own, Turn from that and believe the good news, which is the kingdom of God is here. Now, it was true when Jesus was preaching that in Galilee, and it is true today. The kingdom of God is here, and the reign of God in His kingdom comes into our heart through faith. When we repent from going the way we wanted to go, And we say, Jesus, I submit to your kingdom rule. If you're here this morning and you have not done that, I cannot make you do it. But the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin. And I am praying this morning that if you do not know Him, that He is convicting hearts this morning of sin drawing you to repentance. The Bible says it is His goodness that leads us to repentance. So Lord, I pray this morning for any heart that doesn't know You, whether here present, watching online, or listening on a podcast. God, I pray You would do Your work. I pray You would open the eyes of the blind. I pray that they would see, that they would hear, that they would know. That they would repent and believe the good news that You are the Savior of our sin. God, I pray you would do that work this morning. We give you glory. We give you honor. God, help all of us as Christians to be encouraged to go deep into your word, to stand fast, to stand strong, to not waver. But God, to honor you in everything that we do. Lord, I thank you for that today in the name of Jesus. All God's people said, Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed.